0: last week on the discipleship from the 25th to the uh, 34th verse. Remember also as we go through here, the way Luke started off by telling you that there were many other accounts given and that he lets you know that he has gleaned all the available material, talked to eyewitnesses, and then this is the result. But it also lets you know when you look at the material that Luke thought this was obviously very representative of all that he had. He makes it clear that he has a lot more material uh, that he is condensing, uh, putting in an orderly sequence, but obviously he's, he's writing what he feels is very representative of, of everything in the life of Christ and his teaching. Uh, the in part last week on discipleship Let's go back and and read just that that section here before we get into the next part. Uh, Mark, you want to read that verse 25? Start with 25 but go on down through verse
1: 35. Large crowds were traveling to Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down to et- and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear.
0: Okay, now to, to in just in your own words, how would you contrast this to the way discipleship is uh, thought of today? Uh, what exactly is he talking about when he deals with the family situation there, uh, giving up everything in order to be his disciple? Is there anything, any benefit to this section? from the standpoint of evidence. Is there any thought process that would lend itself to the credibility of the the evidence that these these people were dealing with? Well,
2: he's not promising any, any heaven on earth for being become his disciples. So I mean if somebody was gonna make something up, this
0: sure wouldn't be what you would expect. Okay, that uh, He's he's definitely not saying that when you be my disciple that everything is just going to get better for you. That in fact, uh, he says the opposite, doesn't he? It it could cost you your own family as far as mother, father, son, or daughter, etc. And then he makes it clear that if uh, standing on these principles uh, would cost you in this other area, you have to be willing to give that up that these principles are more valuable than even the relationship with your parents, the relationship with your mate, or, or anybody else. Okay, so it's, uh, he's not out, there's obviously not a smooth speech just to get somebody to buy into something that was easy. Well, the very fact that these people bought into this with that kind of statement and became disciples, does that indicate anything? <coughs>
3: They it.
0: Okay, they they believed it. Obviously, they had to. For this kind of thing, does it say anything about the the evidence that they were dealing with when they buy into this kind of teaching?
1: No one would buy into that kind of teaching unless there was evidence to support it, because it costs so much.
0: Okay, we will. Uh, we'll take a chance on a lot of things that don't cost very much, won't we? That I mean, we'll flip a dime for a drink or, or uh, do any number of little things. You may go to the fair and throw darts or, or whatever because the cost is really not that much and you're willing to lose or whatever. But uh, when it comes to something that really costs us, then we tend to back off. And, and, and in fact, that's, I guess that's where we would say that somebody has a problem with gambling, that some sort of a psychological problem. We recognize it as a problem when an individual sees a big cost and doesn't back away from it. He goes in, even though it's strictly uh, all chance. So the very fact they were willing to pay this kind of a cost indicates that the evidence presented to their mind was very strong, that they didn't just believe something that sounded good. Uh, It was uh, very uh, persuasive to them. So, here is Luke then, who was a disciple, giving us this, and here are the, when we read about the apostles, we know they had bought into this, so that doesn't prove the miracles and and the things that they based their faith on from our standpoint, but at least lets us know that uh, when it comes to miracles, if there were none, it was because these people were dramatically deceived, because they obviously had to believe that to... To offer this kind of thing, uh, is there anything different there to uh, the way we offer Christ today in, in Christianity?
1: Seems like we don't. I mean, he's pretty much saying here that uh, he has to be number one priority, and you know what I what I see is I see. Christianity today is, at, I guess, at the most, in 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 a lot, in the in the majority of instances, just you know, if you show up for church, you're doing your du- You've done your duty.
0: Doesn't cost All right, it's uh really when we talk about belief, and most of the churches would have pretty well the same attitude of a faithful Christian, wouldn't they? Uh, anybody that came to the services regularly, uh, and didn't knock anybody in the head or rape anybody during the week, etc. would be considered a faithful Christian, right? I mean that would generally uh, be the case. Uh, But that really doesn't get it so far as this is concerned. But can you see anything now that is from an evidential standpoint that happens in a negative sense when we cheapen Christianity so that there is no cause? In other words, when we become so anxious just to get bodies in the building, and and just to get people uh, uh, baptized. Now we become so anxious that that we don't get into uh, these things. And all, what are some of the negative effects in, that would be in contrast with what, with what we just talked about?
1: We don't even be being the light in the community that we're supposed to be, and there's no difference seen. By the population at large that aren't Christians, between Christians and
0: non-Christians. Okay, we talk about cultural Christians. We talk about sometimes the like you're mentioning, dealing with uh, sometimes uh, uh, students in the church that it's difficult to even hold their attention. I mean, here you are wanting to talk about uh, some biblical subject, and and they're obviously more excited about Michael Jordan or whoever it is than than that subject or whatever might be taking place out there. And so, again, what we have sometimes is parents that are so concerned about their children becoming a Christian, parents who maybe really do believe, and because of that, they're concerned. And so that all the emphasis is get that person you know, to acknowledge and, and to, to be baptized and, uh, and really maybe staying away from the real cost uh, that's involved. That it's, it's something he makes it clear in here that you ought to really think about it, doesn't he? In fact, uh, I think we can see something about this so-called age of accountability, that uh, you have to, according to what he says here, you have to be mature enough to evaluate how much it is going to cost you and then ask yourself the question, am I willing to get that involved? And, and if a person is not, what does he say? I mean, look at verse 33. He cannot be my disciple. It's that simple. So there's no question we're saved by grace through faith. But that faith is one that will motivate a person to do a lot of things the Lord wants done. And he said, if, it, if you don't feel this way and all, you cannot be my disciple. Uh, I don't want to cheapen this in any way, but I think of uh, the in the long run the emphasis ought to be on quality and the way he puts it. You see the the advertisement of like the Marine Corps, we want a few good men. Uh, That uh, if you were in a tight situation, would you rather have a few that really knew what they were doing and were good, or would you rather have a lot and half of them didn't want to be there? Do we have an example of that in the Old Testament?
1: told them to go home if, if, no. they weren't, if they didn't want to fight or if they just <laughs> got married or, oh. I mean, several things,
0: you know. No. Anybody that just didn't want to fight told them get up and go home. About half of them got up and went home. And that was it. But they got down to the point that, uh, I mean, he wanted those that really uh, wanted to go. And, and, that, the, the, and, of course, they come out better in the long run with that. Okay, then uh, the statement... That we're here as salt to the earth. Uh, the church is not a place then for somebody that really is not converted. Any other comments? Anybody want to make on or observations on that passage? Okay. Now we get down into a a very unique feature concerning Christ when you compare him with the religious leaders of that day and although we're all familiar with these principles that are taught here it's interesting the, the church has preached a multitude of sermons on this and we all recognize it we would all say we believe it but it's something still that I think we would reach a lot more people if we ever practiced what he, would, what he was doing right here uh, Okay, you want to continue on start with the 15th chapter. And let's read on all the way through that to the uh come on around. And we'll, let's read it on through the through the end of the chapter. You
3: want me to start? Yeah. How far do you want
2: me
0: read? Just a comfortable place read a, you know, down to verse uh, yeah, 7, something okay. like that, and just a comfortable place to stop. I think that ends at one paragraph there. Okay.
1: Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays, uh, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you likewise, there will be more <coughs> joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just, ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the
2: same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The young one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them.
3: The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost in his balance, so they began to celebrate. a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends but when the son of yours he has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, comes home you kill the fattened calf for him my son the father said you are always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is found
0: okay look at the uh, first part what's the unusual thing now in the first few verses from this context what would you gather the the Pharisees what was their attitude towards people that were just simply living in rank sin
2: They really looked down on them
0: yeah. They had much to do with them? No. They have anything to do. With them. The word Pharisee means uh, separated one. And the way the Pharisees had their origin of uh, During the period after Alexander the Great, where he spread the Greek culture, a lot of devout Jews could see uh, Jews being influenced by Greek philosophy. And so they were very concerned that the Jews were going to be influenced by that world. And so uh, the Pharisees come from a background, from an origin, that was to call people back to the law of Moses and separate them from the world. And the intention initially was good. It would be just like today as Christians, being concerned about a lot of wrong things and your children and things of this, and so you want to create a community where you're, you're un, uninfluenced by the, the negative things in the world. Their intention initially was good, but then they went to the point that they, they became almost like the Mennonites. In fact, it may be a good contrast with them. They separated themselves completely. Uh, they were the holy and the, the righteous ones. And they actually look down on others that didn't live as well as as they do. Is that an easy thing to get into? I mean, how do we talk about when? We, I mean, us. How do we talk about people that are out there drinking and doing drugs and and uh, living loose lives, homosexuals, uh, people living together outside of marriage, and things like that? Um, <coughs> We, uh, we recognize it's bad. We separate. We don't want a lot to do with that type thing. So it's a very easy thing uh, to do, and you can start off with good intentions of just not wanting to endorse something that's wrong or maybe have younger people influenced in some way. But they had reached the point that they had absolutely nothing to do with these people and then here you have Jesus, who literally astounds them. And it's obvious that he's doing something unusual here when he actually associates uh, with the tax collectors. Why was the tax collector so hated among them?
2: Well, they represented Rome and collected taxes from the Jews to go to
0: Rome. Okay, it was Jews that actually sold out to Rome. And so it'd be like we've been conquered by another country and some of your fellow citizens have hired in to the other force and was going to collect taxes for them. Well, the salary they worked on is they had to collect a certain amount for Rome. Anything above that was their salary. And they were pretty well they were pretty well paid. And so they had a terrible reputation. So here are the tax collectors and the sinners, we've read in other places, the harlots and the publicans heard him gladly, and they couldn't accept him being with them at all. Uh, by his two statements there that uh, look at verse 7 there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who do not need to repent and then the next one uh, again he says in verse 10 I tell you rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents what principle is there involved there that's applicable to us today before we get into the, the parable,
3: do you have reference?
0: Anything. Anything here that would be of, uh, uh, that we could learn from so far as our own practice. I mean, we can look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers, and then, but what, uh, so far as our trying to please God, um, bring this into our present world? Uh, what What are the principles involved to us?
2: Well, reaching people for Christ is would be extremely important to God. It's, and it's more important, I mean, that's probably the most important thing to do.
0: Okay, when you, when you think of this, he says there's more rejoicing in heaven over just that one that repents. That... Uh, What do you think, based on this, based on the fact that God is love and every human being is made in the image of God, and God's desire is that that all of them be united with him. And the only way to relate to the love of God is, remember, the way you feel towards your child is the way God feels towards everybody. And so you know with your own children that even if one of them goes off on the deep end and does a lot of wrong things, you dislike that, but you will never stop loving that child. All right, then what would you feel towards the individual that was able to reach your child that had gone up on the deep end and persuade them to repent and re-examine themselves and, and come back? You know, you, you can imagine what you would feel uh, to that person. You, I mean, we know this even in a, a physical sense with doctors who perform an operation or something and, and help somebody out. All right, how would you contrast this then with uh, uh, related to our worship and service to God today? How many people in the church would willfully miss the Lord's Supper or going to service and singing or whatever? That seems to
3: be the most important to a lot of them being there for those activities but they don't want to do
0: anything outside of that. Okay, we wouldn't in fact, could we miss it in good conscience? The worship service or the Lord's Supper, right? We couldn't uh, we couldn't miss the worship service or the Lord's Supper or any of that in in good conscience. But what effort from the standpoint of looking at us as a group or the body, what effort is really made to try and reach somebody that is not already a Christian I mean I, we know it's been done but I mean on the, on the whole and so what he's saying here is that when you go through the week uh, this gas station attendant or the grocery store attendant or, or the person you work with or whatever it is if they are not in Christ then doing some things that's necessary to try and reach that person just may be more important than some of the things you think are real important, that, uh, that, that you, there's nothing more important than you can do. We're not taking away from these other things. We're just saying that there's absolutely nothing more. All right, now think of this then. We, uh, we worship and we find the time to do it. Right? We we go to worship, we take the Lord's Supper and we sing songs and we have prayer and we study. And then when it comes to trying to reach anybody, we all say that we agree that it's a good thing, but then what do we say that keeps us from doing anything about it? Don't have the time. time. (laughs) So on the one hand, if you ask us what would be more important actually reaching a person that is separated and, and and doing the things and saying the things that causes this person to rethink his situation and become united with God are being there at every service. And we would say that this would more, in other words, be better than a few services. If, if in order, but then we find time for this and we don't find time for that. Uh, what are some lesser things that uh, are important, but not this important, that we find time for?
3: Sports, TV, etc.
0: OK. We, um, is there, there's nothing wrong watching a ball game, is there? Nothing wrong with going hunting, Mark. <laughs> I watch a ball game, Mark goes hunting. Um, nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. Uh, we know that we need a certain amount of recreation, right? But, but the point is that we find time to do those things, and yet here is something that is a, a, lot, more, a lot more important. Uh, and from the standpoint of the congregation, I would suggest to you that in any congregation, not, not every single solitary one, but in the vast majority of congregations that you could visit, that there would be activity that revolves around worship, activity that revolves around providing things for our young people to do, uh, activity that is concerned about ministering to the elderly, or or, or any number of activities, visiting sick Christians, etc. And if you would look at the time that was involved in these activities, you'd probably find the time involved in any one of them was more than the time that's in, set apart to actually try and get people in Christ that it'd probably come out uh, more and yet here now look at it from still another point before we get into the prodigal son uh... jesus is the son of god he develops himself to this big event in in his life and then when we think of jesus for his three and a half year ministry how do we think of him? Darren, you're not very talkative. That <laughs> well, was
1: such a vague question. I'm, I'm sorry. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> how do you think, of,
0: do you yeah, think, right, you think of Jesus? From I mean, from the standpoint of Jesus was the Son of God. He worshipped God. He prayed. He etc. What do you primarily think of Jesus as? If you had, if you were trying to describe what he was doing while he was here,
3: teaching. Yeah.
0: Okay, he was, we think of him, don't we have songs come to seek and save the lost? That, uh, I mean, was his mission to this earth primarily to, to cleanse up the false interpretations of the law of Moses? Uh, did he do anything there that a great prophet couldn't have done? I mean, he, obviously you would expect him to do that, but any great prophet could have also uh, done that thing. But uh, we think of him as spending his entire time is trying to reach people that are lost, and then he's eventually going to die for people that are lost. So when you think that God had one son, and he spent literally all his time trying to reach people for the salvation of their soul. Obviously, that was the the most important thing to him. some of the comments to show you how important it is to him that one time when a guy talked to him about a, uh, his, his father and a death and Jesus was wanting him to leave right then because he had something for him to do about reaching to others, you remember the statement he made to him? Let the dead bury the dead. Let the dead bury their dead. I mean, that's almost, that almost sounds hard, but uh, let the dead bury their dead. In other words, what you're doing is more important than this. Remember the apostles in Acts six, when they had all these needy people in the church, and they need to be taken care of, and that's a good work. But you remember how they handled the situation? All kinds of needy people, and yet they were concerned about something else. Acts the sixth chapter.
2: They
0: said they should be out ministry and turn over somebody else. Okay. They said taking. Pick out somebody to be in charge of the tables, and we need to be doing this. And so the indication, to my mind, is that anybody that has the everybody does have different abilities, and everybody has. Uh, uh, in fact, we know to even to lead others, you've got to have reached a point where you've studied to a certain point. But if you have reached the point in your development where you you do know enough, and you can teach others, and you can lead others, and reach others. Then they were saying that uh, that was more important than anything you could do. That uh, you was wasting your time if you was doing other things, even though they may they may be good things.
3: Hey, Dad, do you think you could say that like too? With um, Matt and I were talking the other day, and we were talking about turkeys. How so sometimes we spend money selfishly. You know, it's like on ourselves instead of spending the money to bring other people in with us. We kind of use it selfishly like in church buildings and stuff like that, and like Darren and I were talking today about even the Houston trip, it's a really good thing, but it was like for us, it was um, educational for us, instead of like, like he was saying, he would have liked to have done more for more people, yeah. you know, as far as helping other people with the money. Sometimes I think we even do that selfishly, like with money and stuff.
0: Yeah, I think there is. I think that was good in the sense that, that for young people who have more than an average amount in life to see the other side and develop an appreciation for it. I think it was good for the people that did it, and I think they can do some good, but also I believe, like what Darren is saying on that, that I think a lot of trips have been planned with the more concerned for the individuals themselves than doing, remember well you was just a uh, young but Barberman rem- the thing in Jessup where we had a campaign for Christ and so a church came down to uh, help us in this effort and they had the preacher there and they, had a- they brought their entire youth group and they were going to knock doors and everything but they spent every afternoon out on the beach and it was obvious that their main motivation for coming was the togetherness that they were having and going to the beach and things like that and they were willing to do some of these other things in order to get that there. It actually caused us some problems. You know, we, had, uh, we had some complaints uh, during, during the course in various things on familiarity between the boys and the girls and things like that while, while we were doing all this. But again, it was conducted. The main, main thing that these people were going for was to be together and to go to the beach and do some of these fun things. And in order to have that, they were willing to do the other. That's like uh, when we talk about the—you know—talk to the elders and all there about the youth program and all in church. I think there's a difference between the emphasis being on the spiritual, and then you do this simply for a break, recreation. It's—it's it's, you know you're 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 tired. You need a break. You know you 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 need to have this over there, and you're humans and you're dating, etc. There's a difference between that and all that peripheral stuff being the, the thing that you want to do, and then you do a little of this over here to justify getting all that. I think there's a complete difference. You're, you're doing both, but the emphasis and the attitude is, uh, is is different. And I think it ought to be to reach others. And just like you mentioned on the, the church buildings, um, a lot could be done. Look at the, the situation here now, the attitude towards the lost. Think of the prodigal son now. What, uh, if you had run into that guy, keep in mind he's just not anybody out there, is he? He's a rich man's son, he has a lot of money. Now what do you think of a rich guy with a lot of money that's out there wandering around with the prostitutes and drinking and having a good old time? What do you think about him from the standpoint of being a prospect? I'm thinking, well, he'd be good. <laughs> but I mean, do we do we think of him? Right? We don't think of that, really, do we?
3: Well, he, he's thinking of his money, right? Is that what yeah, you? yeah, that's what yeah. I was
0: saying. Were for were for yeah. But I mean, uh, our our identif- identification with this person—he's out here and he's drinking, and he's uh, living with people he's not married to, and he's just doing everything he wants to indulge his his flesh. OK, well, let's get him down to the where he hits rock bottom now. And he's already spent all his money. And first of all, we say he deserved what he got. And so there he is. He's squandered all his money. He's been with those <coughs> prostitutes. Or maybe it's a prostitute that has squandered everything and is out now making her living as a prostitute. She's lost everything. How do we feel about those people? I mean, we don't, do we honestly look at them as good prospects that if we invested a little time in, we might reach? We don't.
2: You're looking for people that are married, good jobs, everything, I mean, they're good moral people. They just don't go to church.
0: Okay. (laughs) If uh, Darren and I go to visit 20 churches in the next 20 weeks, and uh, I dress up in a suit, a tie, drive a nice car, my wife is with me, and Derek will let him grow his hair for about three months <laughs> and not shave and go in in jeans and an old shirt and in a, in a beat-up car, which one of us is honestly going to get the most attention? Who's going to be considered the best prospect?
3: Well, that's really sad, isn't it? That yeah. is
0: the truth. All right, but who really? I mean, let's say that the truth is we we're already Christians, but they would look at us. They want us to place their membership there. You know, we'd have we'd increase the contribution. Maybe I could work with the youth or do something positive. We could be positive contributing members, but what about Darren? He doesn't. You're thinking he's probably he, he, he there for a handout. He may need yeah. <laughs> something. Yeah. He may be sick, and we'd have to pitch in, and pay his hospital bill. You know, he may not have anything in the pantry, and we may have to get something. And so we become concerned. But in reality, uh, where is the Lord's heart? It's not that he don't love us, but we're already on His side. And not only that, in reality, let's say that we haven't become Christians yet. Which one of us really is maybe the best? Pro- Why would Darren maybe be a better prospect than us if neither one of us were Christian?
1: Mm-hmm. We might we already
3: see that we need, it, God, and we might think that if we have everything going great life, we might not see the need. Okay. God, like He would see if He'd already, if He, if He'd experienced life without God and made a lot of mistakes, He could see that it didn't work. Okay. We might be doing great and not really realize that we need God.
0: Okay. The consequences of sin have put him in a position where he really is not going to make a big argument that sin's a good thing. I mean, it's not deceiving to him anymore. It's put him in there. And so what happened to the prodigal son? It was after the consequences that it says he came to himself. And what does it say? How does it word it in here? Um, does it say came to his senses? Yeah, when he came to his senses. Verse 7, when he came to his senses, he said, in other words, that what he's been, the impression is that what he's been doing is foolish. After suffering the consequence of it, he realizes it was foolish. He's now come to his senses. He's now the perfect prospect. All right, I think something we can see in here is that all these people out there that, whether they're doing drugs or they're on alcohol or they're living with somebody they're not married to, that They may not have reached rock bottom yet, but that doesn't stop us from sowing seeds in their mind. What if, when this guy reached rock bottom, he did not have that past experience in his mind? What would have happened then, or could have happened? He wouldn't have any hope. Okay, You're at rock bottom. He doesn't know about the Father. He doesn't know about how good everybody's having it here. You know, that's why that, remember one statistic read last week that in the past uh, 30 years, we was comparing statistics, that teenage suicides have quadrupled in the past uh, 30 years. Suicides of every age category, but especially teenagers, have quadrupled in the past 30 years. Uh, These people that are doing things to destroy their body, I mean, are they really so ignorant that they don't know that it's destroying their body? Sometimes it can be a good escape from reality, can it, the thing? So that we don't know. The, the point is, I think we play a part even before they hit rock bottom. If we're sowing seed in those minds and teaching and talking and trying to get information, then when they do reach the point where they come to themselves, they've at least got something to think about. And I think that when you meet people that are on drugs, or if you're talking to somebody that's a homosexual, that we ought to be the last people that call them faggots. We ought to be the last people that look down our nose at anybody. That you want them to think highly of you, and to like you, and to know that you care about them, so that if they do reach that point where they're interested, that you want them to be thinking of you as somebody to be a good to turn to and, and, and could, could help them out. Well, now, if you're talking about you as an individual, what about a church in the community? Can a church in a community develop a reputation where when you're down and out or anything that there there is help there? I think it can. Uh, for example, if, uh, of the various organizations, Christian organizations, which one comes to your mind, if, if you were out there really on skid row and lost everything, which one comes to your mind is one that you know would help you out? Salvation Army. Salvation Army, that's what comes to my mind. That even if I was on Skid Row and I had got there by making every mistake in the book, I know that I could walk into a Salvation Army place and there would be food and shelter and, and it would, uh, they, they'd be there even though I was a scoundrel that it would, it would still, still be there. Uh, and by the way, I'm not endorsing everything about their approach. There may be times when uh, they do too much in the other way. They may help keep people on skid row by having it. I, but I, the point is we think of them as a group, and I'm saying that it's, we ought to have a, a type thing where when people are down and out, that they know that uh, these people honestly care. Uh, and uh, and also most of the time when it comes to even deserving, most of these people that are in the consequence of sin are probably not going to deserve help, are they? I mean, they, if we're we're waiting on that, uh, what do you see in that parable of the sore There, any of all, there's all kinds of things hit at. You've got a, you've got the father, you got two yeah, yeah, sons, parable of the parable of the, oh, the prodigal son. Think of Jesus is having this discussion with the sinners and the Pharisees and the religious leaders take issue with Him. So He gives them three straight parables and culminates with the prodigal son. And here we've got a father, we've got two sons, and then we've got one that goes off on the deep end and repents, and then we've got another son. And putting it all together, what are some of the lessons we can see when we look at the father, look at each one of the sons? And the whole situation. What are some of the different things we can see?
1: Seems like that he's likening uh, God to the Father, and and the Pharisees to the second son, and, and the tax collectors and the you know the sinners to the the first son, who's who's a sinner, and so he's indirectly made a point to him there.
0: Okay. Based on the context, I agree with Mark that. Uh, uh, obviously there was a reason for bringing in the elder son yeah. and, and in, since in this context it was the Pharisees uh, that had objected so highly they seemed to be it seemed to bother, well, what about the elder son, let's go back and before we paint him as such a scoundrel, is it easy to be an elder son?
2: Yeah, you think you deserve more recognition if you haven't fallen
0: away and Put yourself in this family now that uh you've stayed there and you've done for your parents and you've worked and and this other guy just took his and went off and squandered it and turns around and comes back home. Do you want to take him in as an equal? It'd be difficult, wouldn't it?
3: Maybe Jonah's a good example of that, not wanting the people of Nineveh to repent. Okay.
0: Jonah didn't want the people of Nineveh to repent because he knew God would not forgive them and he wanted them punished. And so when somebody has really wronged us and done bad things, uh, it's difficult. But notice here, he's not just saying to take this person back. He's saying take this person back after they repent. And if they do repent, they, they come back. Some of you may have some experiences like this in your, your family situation. But if somebody, before we get too mad at this elder son, I think we have to work not to be that way. If you have been a responsible person and somebody else has just simply gone off and done all the wrong things, and then all of a sudden they turn, they come back, and they and to receive them in like nothing ever happened, that is a very difficult thing to do. But uh, that's exactly what he's, what he's teaching. And another thing, he makes it clear, the elder son's not losing anything. All right, now, is there a sense in which the elder son, if he takes him back and he forgives him, that, that he doesn't lose anything for being faithful all those years. That what does he have that the other one doesn't have? I mean, is, is he really? Does he have something that, that didn't
3: make as much of a blunder out of his mind.
0: Okay. What and about he has
3: friends and yeah, has yeah, relationships and has benefits? Okay. From keeping he God's right.
0: He doesn't have the consequences. Uh, when David was forgiven by God the consequences for David's sin was with him for the rest of his life. And the same with the prodigal son. Uh, here's the elder son. He may very well be happily married and, and have children and have everything going good. What about the prodigal son? He's been out there with the prostitutes. And so he's, he's, he has the full consequence of his sin. Well, if somebody's repented, the consequence of the sin is bad enough without somebody else rubbing it in that I mean that's bad enough and and the elder son need to keep in mind that that the other person's not getting away with anything I mean they do have those consequences and those consequences are bad enough
3: pharmacists and the preacher forget it right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay look at the uh, the uh, principle involved here what about uh, the thought that some have that if parents do their job right they are absolutely guaranteed that those children will just all do right from then on period and they and they won't go wrong
3: God, This, the this, father pictured as the father in there and the, the child
0: okay You might say, what a lot of people don't realize, the statement in Proverbs, train up a child in the way it should go, when he gets old, he'll not depart. That is a general observation. It's not meant as a maxim or, or ultimate truth or any of the Proverbs, for that matter. But we all can make that. As a general rule, that's right. But everybody is an individual. They can make a decision. And a person may very well have good parents who have done everything right and they still make a decision and and make some mistakes and, and go off like this. And we see the other happening too, don't we? We see people who have very poor parents and who make the decision to do what is right. So we, we see complete free will and free choice. What do you see about God's relationship there? We have free choice. What about God and his relationship to us and providence and things like that? Can you tell any of that in that parable?
1: child asked for his inheritance he just he gave it to him and allowed him to go and do that even though he he knew what the consequences were going to be
0: okay that God will allow us to do what we want to do even though it's wrong and even though he doesn't want to by the way this makes a good passage to use when you're talking about uh, suffering and evil in the world dealing with questions like you know if God exists and if God is all good, then why do we have suffering and, and bad things happening? God obviously doesn't force anything of us on us, and he allowed the prodigal son. All right, now, looking at it from the father's standpoint, what was the advantage in doing it this way as opposed to just simply making the son stay there? And, and he, didn't, he didn't have to give it, his wealth to him
1: son might have rebelled and ended up hating his father if he had trapped him in staying at
0: home. Okay, what if he never got out and got to suffer the consequences for doing the other thing? What may he have carried with him in his mind? He wouldn't
3: have realized that um, it was like things, like it was inherently right.
0: Okay. Something
3: is inherently right. You learn things like that through experience sometimes.
0: Okay. We, we can be told something is right and everything, but but right. He would just know it would be right simply because the Father said so, but it's suffering the consequences that made him realize that it was inherently right. And so now when he comes back, the Father doesn't have to force him to stay with him, does he? This is one of the great differences between Judaism and, and Christianity. Supposedly, Christianity is not people that have come in just because they're in a Christian family, but have come in because of their realization of their relationship with God and they're there of their own free will. Okay, what, about, what does this say about an attitude that uh, once you know what's right and you're heading in that direction that, uh, that uh, you either can't or won't turn and go right back out into the world?
2: That's not true.
0: If the Holy Spirit is doing any nebulous thing to cause believers to continue to be good and everything separate from their own will and all, then it's different than what we see here that God doesn't do anything to force his will on man. That he has total free choice. What about this elder son? The father's not going to make him forgive him, is he? He's going to try to persuade him. To, to forgive him. But the, uh, the son and the elder son all have free choice. There's absolutely nothing forced on them. The son is in a saved relationship with the father. He's been taught about right and wrong. He's a mature adult, and of his own free will, he makes a decision. Uh, this really isn't somebody you'd compare to a pagan, because this son here already believed in the father, had the good experiences and had a relationship with the father and then of his own free will left and then of his own free will came back after he suffered the the consequences. Uh, Another thing I think we learn in there too that when we do have people leave the fold in the church never write them off. Just absolutely never write them off because you never know when. And, And another thing to show that although we may not be in fellowship we ought to admonish them as brothers and maintain an attitude of, of love, is that if they do suffer consequences, you don't want to make it difficult for them to repent. And, and we can. We can actually conduct ourselves in such a way as to make it very difficult for the other person to repent. We, we want to be approachable. We want to be the type of people that people do not mind admitting that they made a mistake. And, and they know that we have good feelings about them individually, even though they're making the mistake. That, uh, in other words, I think I don't believe you can have a church that is really reaching a lot and converting unless you have these attitudes involved, where the people that are honestly lost feel comfortable, know those people are concerned about them, know that that uh, they would be welcome into the service, even though they're not doing. Uh, everything right. you want them there in order to have some influence on them.
1: Another thing um, I just read the very last uh, verse, the latter part says uh, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again he was lost and is, and is found and so that to me that that means that that while he was out,
0: Squandering the wealth and living wildly, he was lost. Right. And not right. He was acting in and, a state of, you know. That's a real good point, uh, Mark. That he wasn't in a continual saved state because he happened to be the child of the right father. That he was lo- not only that he said he was lost and he was dead. So he was lost and he was dead. And then when he repented and come back, uh, then he was in a saved state again. Oh, that that was good. All right, look at this word dead. How is it used in this context? Two times it refers to him as being dead and now alive. Would you assume that
2: anybody that's separated from God is considered spirit? be a spiritual death?
0: Or? Okay. We see the, we think of death, in fact, in our vernacular, in English, death is cessation. And that's really not uh, accurate so far as the Greek word. The Greek word here is thanatos, and it literally means separation. And that's why that in baptism it pictures you being dead to sin and then made alive in, in Christ, that uh, you were separated because of sin, and then when you were united you made alive. We see that lost and found and dead and alive are used in a synonymous way that uh, you're saying exactly the same thing. So the word death simply means to be separated from, and that's it. Uh, Death in the body is, uh, James would say, the separation of the spirit from the body. And it has no reference to cessation at all. But death occurs when the spirit separates from the body. And death occurs, uh, so far as our relationship with God, any time we're separated from God, and life occurs any time when we're united with Him. And Jesus spoke of eternal life as something that you possess whenever you believe in Him. If you believe in me, you have you know, eternal life. So it's an immediate possession. You're united with God. Your spirit then is said to be alive. Without that, you're dead. Paul writes to Timothy and refers to a woman as dead while she lives that uh, while she was living, she was obviously separated from God and so dead in that sense. Any other uh, observations or comments? Mr. Cook. Uh-huh.
2: I'd like to go back and see later on down the road what happened. I would, I would feel, just from my experience, that the prodigal son would probably be a lot more on fire than the elder son. Things like people who go through experiences like that will end up being more humble, more outgoing, more on fire for Christ than the ones who never never experienced that. I don't know if that's a good I guess it is
0: good. Well, I've seen people that didn't experience that, that I in fact a lot that, you know, were outgoing they could see from, you know, the effects on others and things like that. And I've seen individuals that that had a tremendous gratitude for the type family they'd had and all and motivated them to want to do for others. But I agree with what you're saying, that people, uh, it's just like when it comes to drugs and alcohol in our society, some of the people that have been on it and have been rehabilitated are absolutely the most aggressive people in fighting it, because they know the consequences of it. Uh, the They uh, had a thing on the news the other day, this individual that was 47 years of age and just graduated from college with straight A's, but just about five or six years ago he was on Skid Row and was an alcoholic and on drugs. And he got off of that and has accomplished this. And he made it clear that the rest of his life was going to be dedicated to reaching people in the same condition he was. Uh, Remember David, when he asked God to, to make an exception and not take his life, spare him from blood guiltiness in Psalms 51 in his prayer? And then remember what he says to God about what he does. He says, I, and I will treat, teach transgressors your ways, that he, he made a promise and a vow to God that I'll spend the rest of my life uh, doing, doing this for you. I think uh, I've seen that a number of times, uh, Darren, where individuals, uh, in fact, it's always been interesting to me through the years, individuals who sometimes had no background in Christianity who were converted, and who then experienced a lot of things in even our church relationship that we take for granted and all, were among the most zealous in actually going out and reaching and trying to, to, to reach other people. I know it was interesting to me, when, when I was converted, I was uh, 18, and uh, so many of the people that were brought up in the church in there seemed to have no zeal Towards wanting to reach other people or to develop and speak or, or anything like that, and I know I felt an obsession almost from the first, and I've known others that felt the same way. But I, I think there is, you know, it truth like to that.
2: Seems because growing up in the church. Yeah. I know it's not always the case, but it just seems to be yeah. more of the case.
0: Yeah, and then uh, I, I do, uh, and then also I th- sometimes I think that people that have that have grown up although they say they believe the power of the gospel, they've just always been with it, I don't think they realize how attractive it really is to people that are not Christian. I mean, they're made in the image of God, and that way of life and all is attractive to many of them, even though they may not say it, and uh, the evidence is, is very persuasive. Any other comments? It's interesting to me that, now think on that with Jesus and, and what His message there, seeking to save the lost, the emphasis, Remember when He sent the twelve out and He sent the, the seventy-two out each time it was going out and make disciples. Remember the way He ends the book, going to all the nations, make disciples and all. There's no question that we cannot do anything more important for God than to do the things that are necessary in reaching others. But I think we can see from this, it's, it's really not as easy as walking down the street and talking to somebody about Jesus or putting little, little old signs up and saying, if you know Jesus, hawk your horn and things like that. But I think it involves creating an entire atmosphere in the church where people, no matter who they are or how they're dressed and how much money they have, can honestly feel comfortable walking in. And that when they walk in, that there's something there that is meeting their needs and appealing to their interest and that we recognize the right people as as being prospects. Anything else?
2: How do you think you go about developing that attitude?
0: I think you have to, uh, I was reading, I just finished a book today that I, I didn't buy it, but it just, it was a, a large group of books that came into school. And so I have to screen them before as to what I can put in there. They, they, there's several hundred that was given to us. So anyway, this one I was one that I screened out that I didn't want in eighth grade library. It was Confessions of an S.O.B. about uh, a chief C.E.O. Uh, of one of the companies. And so I picked it up. It's not the type of thing I want in eighth grade, but it's an excellent book. It's a biography, and uh, the guy's name uh, Newhart. Is the one that founded and owned USA Today, the newspaper which is the number one seller in the country, and he's done all kinds of things. But anyway, it really he really talks about his trip to the top and what makes success and things of that nature. And what he emphasizes over there is that number one, you have to practice what you preach yourself. Uh, for example, that. Uh, that he mentioned that a lot of the people that talked about some of these social changes that need to be done, like uh, equality in various areas, no, they really didn't practice it themselves, even though they did, and he went into any number of areas where people preached good things but didn't practice it. So he believed that, uh, he said, everybody that worked for him in any high position would either practice what they were trying to get others to do Or they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't be in that position. And and, and so he never asked anybody to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. I think what we've had in the church a lot: we preach on evangelism and we talk about it, you know. But it's always somebody trying to persuade somebody else to do it. You know, it's here is a a group that they hold uh, personal work workshops, uh, and so they go around to all the churches and hold personal work. But in reality, they're not doing personal work; they're teaching other people how to do it. It's sort of like selling Amway or one of these things where where uh, you're not selling to the people; you're always recruiting somebody else to sell to the people. But you don't, and nobody, and then some of these things fall by the wayside because nobody makes contact with the people. We're all wanting to recruit other people to go make contact with the people. Well, I think we have a lot of that in church. Everybody thinks it ought to be done. But we had maybe the, from the preacher on down, we're always wanting to tell somebody else to go do it, and and all. But the bottom line is, I don't think anybody's going to listen under the people that are telling them start doing it themselves. And so, when uh, I don't believe any preacher can motivate evangelism unless they know that he does personal work himself, I just think he may as well hang it up. And I think the same is true with elders or deacons or anything. Uh, and that would be true with um, if you're going to talk about anything, even your youth program or anything like that. If you've never done anything and helped out and pinched in and did yourself, you're not going to be very influential in talking to others uh, in, in that realm. And I, I think that we, it's, it's a lot easier to talk to other people than it is to get into the trenches and, and really be talking with these people that we we, we need to reach. And so I think it, it has to do that. And then I don't, I don't believe any one person can do it. Uh, a, a good example is even just like the, the studies that we've had here through the years and all like that, that, uh, it's, that uh, people like yourself and Hugh and my kids have gone out and talked to others and then invited. Them. We supplied a home and an atmosphere and some refreshments and, and some Bible study and things like that. Other people did their thing in the church, that uh, the, somebody's got to get people in there. And when they get in there, that uh, when that individual visits your service, uh, I believe that, that Christians ought to go to every service prepared to invite any visitor home if there's one there. That we used to, in other words, invite him in for refreshments. I'm not saying you do it every time, but if everybody goes with that attitude, you shouldn't have a visitor come into your service and somebody not invite that person home for a cup of coffee and some refreshments and get to know them one-on-one. I mean, not try to evangelize them when they're there, but just get to know them on a one-on-one basis and, and, and introduce them around. And then when they're there, if you take the time to introduce that person around and, and somebody shows some interest in him, there's a chance he'll be back. If not, he probably won't come back. And I think that uh, that anything that... That you would do, and if you don't watch yourself after the services, any we can all get in our little groups with our friends that we like. And I've done this and tell time without thinking, and you and, and the person you need to talk to is out the door when we should be concentrating on them. And, and then, you know, with our with our little groups and all. But I think it's something I believe it can be done, and it has been done. And there's been any number of churches all through the years that have been very successful in in doing evangelistic work but I believe it's a church endeavor. And again, the best example of what we're saying, Jesus modeled what he preached. You know, he, he did the very thing he asked them to do. Any other comments? And then I think too along with that is that, realize that the, the seed of the kingdom is the word of God and any time you're talking with people, I mean, we talk about baseball and the weather and all this good stuff, that uh, you don't have to convert that. You're not going to convert them in a few minutes. Don't even think that way. But if you can just get a few good words for the Lord in in their mind, and then the next time you're with them, you get a few more good words, uh, that uh, you're going to... And if every Christian does that, you're accomplishing something in the long run. Anybody else want to say anything before we call it? Darren? Okay.